I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. I was reminded this week of a story I heard years ago about a blizzard out west, and the preacher showed up at church that day, and when he showed up, he looked out, and not only was attendance down, there was one cowboy sitting in a pew. And the preacher thought to himself, well, you know, if one person's here, I'm just still going to go all in and preach the word. And so that day, he uh, preached the entire sermon. And afterward, you know, it's kind of awkward. There was one person there, and the cowboy um, came up to him and said, th- you know, thank you for the sermon, preacher. And he said, sure. And he said, well, how was it? He said, well, it was, it was a little bit long. And uh, the preacher said, well, let me ask you, if, if you had one cow show up to be fed, wouldn't you feed that cow? And the cowboy said, well, preacher, I guess I would, but I don't know if I'd give him the whole load. So as we come to God's word this morning, hopefully God will encourage us and, uh, and build us up in faith, even as we are a little down in attendance this morning. This is the third of our looks at Jesus' return, Jesus is coming back, part three. And today Jesus focuses on judgment day and what that day is going to be like. We start by looking at a story of some servants. And the focus of this story is that for us, hearing well done requires investing all that we are and all that we have for Jesus. Hearing well done requires investing all that we are and all that we have for Jesus. So if you follow along, I'll begin reading in Matthew 25, verse 14. Matthew 25, 14. Jesus says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I've made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you didn't sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what's yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." But when something like a coronavirus with various names hits a community, then a nation, and then really an entire world and gets everyone talking about the same thing, it gets people 
at some level, assessing their risk, assessing their exposure to the virus. Is it paranoia? Is it reasonable? What kind of assessment do you make of that? Well, at the same time that happens, people begin assessing other risks, like financial risk. And they begin evaluating their stock portfolio. And as that goes up and down, goes up and down, then at some level they begin to either fear or feel good if they're kind of buying low and then hoping it'll rise back up. But what God's Word teaches us this morning is that we should spend more time thinking about our investment in eternity than we do in what we can see, touch, feel, smell, sound here in this world. We should spend more time thinking about sort of an eternal investment than our financial investments here, the Dow Jones Industrial or the NASDAQ. We should spend more time thinking about the care and safety and security of our soul than we do about our physical safety. You see, even if the coronavirus is the worst epidemic ever to hit the globe, it still won't get all of us. But Judgment Day is coming for every one of us. And Jesus uses this illustration or this story to illustrate that Judgment Day is coming. Judgment Day illustrated. Now, a good boss is only as good as the people who serve with him. And this story tells us about a boss who has three people working for him, three servants. And they have, obviously, varying track records and kind of historical uh, tallies and abilities. And so he's going on a journey, and when he leaves, he leaves them with various amounts of money, one with five talents, one with uh, three talents, and one with one talent, or two talents and one talent. Now, the English word talent actually derives from this parable, but we use it differently. We normally uh, think of talents as sort of uh, giftedness or ability that someone has. You can see there's a connection there, but talent here literally is a weight of money. It's the largest weight in the ancient world. It's the largest kind of uh, denomination that they have to measure wealth. It's a weight of metal, typically silver, but it could be other metal as well. It's sort, uh, somewhere in the range of 66 pounds of silver. So one talent is a lot of silver. In the first century, a talent is worth uh, 600 denarii. And as you followed the parables of Jesus, we've heard that term, or sorry, 6,000 denarii. If you've heard that term before, a denarii is, uh, is one day's worth of pay. So if it's worth 6,000 denarii, if you're, if you're good at math here, how many days do you work? 6,000. So it's essentially a half, half of a lifetime worth of work to earn one talent. If you were to tease that out into today's world, uh, one talent would be worth north of $1 million. So when the master leaves, he gives one servant $5 million plus, another $2 million plus, and another $1 million plus. Well, as he leaves, the, the, the least servant gets a lot of money. I mean, a million dollars is a lot to be entrusted with. So we're talking three servants, five, two, $1 million dollars. Well, Jesus tells us first that the first two servants are faithful. They get the same rate of return. $5 million comes back at $10 million and $2 million at $4 million. They're pretty good at what they do. Verse 9 tells us the boss has gone a long time, and verse 14 helps us understand the nature of their relationship. He entrusts to them his property. So they're in a position of trust, and in, the, in verse 19, the boss returns to settle accounts. So this is the equivalent of, I don't know, you entrusting an investment advisor with 
your life savings and saying, do a good job managing uh, my money, and then sitting down and saying, how's it going? So the master's returning saying, how are my investments? You know, wh wh what's going on here? And hopefully you're not having that conversation in the same time that a coronavirus is hitting the, uh, the globe. But the master responds the same way to both servants. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, so I'll set you over much. So why is it that the master rewards these servants? Faithfulness. So ultimately, even though they both make money, ultimately what it rewards is not the rate of their return, it's their faithfulness. So this brings us to the unfaithful servant. Now what does the unfaithful servant do? He takes a million dollars and he buries it in his backyard. Not only is this not a good investment, it's stupid if anyone sees you do it. But he buries it there. And when the master returns, he kind of throws it at him and says, here's what's yours. This is all you get. So what's so bad about this? I mean, doesn't the servant keep the boss's money safe? Well, verse 14, he's entrusted with a great deal of money. I mean, this is no small responsibility that he has. So in verse 19, when the master comes back to settle accounts, it's, it's a demonstration of the fact that every servant understands what his responsibility is. Their job isn't primarily to keep the money safe, it's to use the money wisely in a way that acts in the best interest of the master, not self-protection. So what does unfaithfulness look like? Well, in verse 26, the boss calls this servant wicked and slothful. Well, slothful is a word that we hear that we immediately think laziness, and, there, and there's certainly a measure of that. But also within, the, this word literally means shrinking or hesitating. In other words, in fear, he shrank from what he knew to be his responsibilities. His responsibility is to take the resources the master has given him and invest those for the master's benefit in a way that grows the master's wealth. Well, as this servant fails to live out his responsibilities, what's the heart of his failure here? What's the heart of unfaithfulness? Verse 24 tells us it's his view of the master's character. Master, I knew you to be a hard man. You reap where you didn't sow, you gather where you didn't scatter, so I was afraid of you. He manifests this heart with, with suspicion toward the master. The master has responsibilities caring for his servants, and the servants have responsibility to their master. What's the servant's responsibility? His job is literally to do work that benefits the master. That, that's his job. But the servant views his job as exploitation. So rather than seeing this as faithfulness, he says, if I work in a way that benefits you, you're exploiting me. He suspects the master. If the servant works hard, the master profits. So the servant calls him a hard man. The servant also refuses to accept responsibility. He, he manifests a heart of blame. Rather than owning up, so the master shows up and he says, hey, what's going on? Rather than owning up to his responsibility, he blames the master's character. Now, his failure is his responsibility, but he can't accept that. He distances himself. Why did he fail? Well, in his mind, it's not because of his lack of character. It's because of the master's lack of character. It's not because he's lazy. It's because the master is harsh. He blames the master. Well, he further manifests this with resentment. His view of the master leads him to resent his master. He will reap where he didn't sow. 
mean, the servant's job is to succeed for the sake of his master, but he resents this relationship, and this, relation, this resentment leads then to fear. He says, I was afraid. I went and hid your talent in the ground. You see, fear, fear has a paralyzing effect on us, doesn't it? It cripples us from, from living out what we could ordinarily live out. When I was a kid, one of my responsibilities was feeding our horses hay during the winter. And the, the barn was about, I don't know, 100 or 150 yards from our house. And when you're eight years old, that is like an eternity at night. And when I would leave the back door of our house and walk out the garage and I'd look up at the barn, I'm here, there's light, there's warmth, there's safety, there are people, there's protection. And up there is judgment day. <laughs> and so the minute I would, run, I, I would leave the house, I would sprint as fast as I could for the barn. And the thing I would do is scramble in the dark to flip on the light. And what would happen is, during the daytime, that same trek, which I made many times in daylight, was warm, friendly, inviting. There, there was nothing to fear. But in the dark, I was afraid. Now, I never would have admitted I was afraid, but I was scared. And every time I made that trek at night, I was fearful. What happened? Fear seized my heart, and it made it impossible for me to interact with that same distance, that same task at night in the same way that I would during the day. Fear paralyzes it. It captivates us. It makes what's ordinary difficult. It makes what's difficult impossible. And this, this servant was seized by fear, and his fear led him to failure. He's paralyzed by it. He simply doesn't do what he's supposed to do, and ultimately, it manifests itself in selfishness. I mean, look at the end of verse 25. He kind of throws it at the master's feet. Here, have what's yours. You can almost hear the selfishness dripping from his voice. The strong implication here is this, if the servant had been working for his own sake to make himself money, he'd have done the job. But he didn't because he's not going to benefit someone else. So, for us, where is it that unfaithfulness springs from? For us, it's a view of God's character that views him with suspicion. As if God isn't good or God isn't sovereign. You see, God must be both good and sovereign to do what we need him to do. If God is not good, we can't trust his help. If God is not sovereign, he's not able to help. And so what happens is over time, unfaithfulness and fear eat at our view of God in a way that saps our faith in God. I mean, think about the, the very first encounter that a human being had with this sort of temptation in the Garden of Eden. Eve's walking around, and up to her comes snake, the silver-tongued serpent. And he speaks to her, and he asks her a question. And there are a lot of words to it, but it boils down to this, has God actually said? Did God say? And what he does is he erodes her confidence in God's words. He erodes her confidence in God's words as being good for her. If God were really good, he'd want you to eat from this tree, but God has kept what is good from you. And she begins then to fear, to suspect that God really isn't in the world looking out for her good, and it leads her ultimately to sin. You see, our view of God's character as revealed in his word is like true north on a compass. It becomes what guides us through life. 
When we see God's character as it's revealed in his word, it guides us toward a real experience of of God's work in the world. But we lose sight of that character. When we view it with suspicion, we lose our guide. We lose true north on our compass. God says, I'm good all the time. We say, God, you're good when you give me what I want. God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. We say, God, you're good when you make me feel good. God says, I discipline you in love. We say, God, you punish us because you don't like us. You see, the distance between our experience and God's character is faith. It's the substance of things hoped for. And when we walk through life, there's a battle between God's words and our words. God's character as it's revealed and God's character as we imagine him to be. In Numbers 23, the prophet Balaam is in an extended conversation with Balak, and there's, there's this conversation about, an extended conversation about the supremacy of God's words, like whose words will reign supreme. And Balaam there says this about God's character. He says, God is not a man that he should lie. Now, we walk through life, and we imagine that God's character is like our character. We judge God as if he had a sinful human character like ours. But God isn't like us. God is spirit, love, and truth. Jesus Christ, God's son, is the only perfect human being, the most beautifully perfect human being ever. He interacts with perfect justice, perfect righteousness, perfect holiness, perfect love all the time. Yet we walk through life imagining God to be something other than what he is, and we create a caricature of God that is nothing like the true God. The 20th century Welsh, Welsh preacher D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, that, Are you aware of the fact that your biggest problem in life is likely that you spend so much time listening to yourself rather than talking to yourself? Speaking truth to yourself. We get trapped in the space of our own heads and we all listen to our favorite preacher, me. And we preach a different gospel, a different truth. So the Christian life must be one of shaping our lives and our words according to God's word, not our words. We must fill our minds and hearts with God's word as it reveals God's character. Then we embrace and we love and we submit to God's words because they reveal God as he is, not as we imagine him to be. God renews our thinking and he shapes our lives according to his word. Ultimately, the servant will be judged for unfaithfulness. What does he receive? What he's got is taken away, given to a faithful servant. Then he's cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. The phrase outer darkness is something unique to Matthew, but he uses it to describe like the furthest you can get from the light. It's, it's, it's the furthest removed from joy, light, and grace. But the faithful servants, they are rewarded. Faithfulness is the wise and courageous leveraging of resources for the master's sake. In contrast to the unfaithful servant, the faithful servants receive commendations. Well done, good and faithful servant. But what is it the master commends? It's not that they made money. He commends their faithfulness. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. 
Now, in this story, they did receive a return on their investment, but we can also conclude that if they had been faithful and worked hard for the sake of the master, they still would have received commendation for their faithfulness. They receive increased responsibility, and then he offers them joy. Enter into the joy of your master. In other words, what we now know is the unfaithful servant has completely misjudged his boss. He welcomes them to joy. The servant's faithfulness, far from enriching the master at the servant's expense, actually leads the servant to his own joy, to his own advancement, to his own enrichment at some level. We often think of relationships as a zero-sum game. Like, love works like if that person has a little love, then, then I get less love. And that's what leads to jealousy or envy in relationships. But what God says here is it's not like that. God is an infinitely creating God. So his blessing on someone else's life isn't something to envy. It's something to enjoy for the sake of that person and for the sake of God's blessing on that person. And this works spiritually too. So if, if God breathes the spirit of revival in our community, but it's the Charleston Baptist Church, not our church, we can rejoice in the goodness of God, even though we don't feel its effects as directly in our lives. I was thinking about this, and there's a, a young man that I grew up with. His name is David Hallberg. He's one of the most uh, joyful people that you could ever meet. He walks through life, and he, he has Down syndrome. So we grew up together, and he would uh, often be a manager on ball teams at a local school. And when it was time, there were a few times in regional or, or state championships, the team did well. Like, who's the happiest person in the building? David. Did David win anything? No, he never won a thing. But he's jumping around, he's cheering. I mean, he's in the middle of the mosh pit. And I was thinking about that. Like, David knows how to share joy. And what he says here is that God's blessing is not a zero-sum game. We understand God's character when we share in the master's joy. When we don't resent the success of others, we don't resent God's blessing on others, even if we're not experiencing it. Now, this servant, he was suspicious, he was resentful, he was fearful. But the servants who understood the master's character knew that the master was one who shared his joy. Well, this parable brings us to another picture. Judgment Day explained when Jesus returns, verses 31 to 46. Read along there, we'll start reading in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry. And you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. 
I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Verses 31 to 46 picture a day when Jesus returns and rules over all nations. No one skates by, no one skips this day. Everyone stands before the king, it's a sobering day, and as the nations of the world stand before Jesus, he separates them on the basis of their relationship to him. Sheep, one side. Goats, the other side. The sheep are those who are in good relationship with the king. Well, the Goats are those who are cast out. Jesus separates these two groups. And then Jesus welcomes the sheep. And he tells us why. I was hungry, you gave me food. Thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Now, now that list is repeated four times. It's, it's, kind of, it's like a rhythm in these verses. So then is Jesus welcoming people to heaven because of the good things they do? Is this some sort of works-based righteousness? No, because Jesus has already said he came to give his life as a ransom for sinners. His life is the payment, but he is saying that those who follow him, those who know him, have their lives so remarkably changed by that relationship that they live in a completely different way, a way that's marked by mercy, love, and generosity. You can tell who knows Jesus by the way that they live. And then when these people say, Jesus, we never saw you hungry. What do you, what do you mean? What are you talking about? He says, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. He's talking about particularly caring for the needy in the family of God. God's word tells us we should do good to all, to love our neighbor as ourselves. But in this case, Jesus is talking about those who walk with him. So Jesus welcomes those who are faithful, but he judges another group. These people demonstrate that they don't know Jesus because they haven't loved Jesus' brothers and sisters. As you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. You see, good works cannot save us, but they can demonstrate that God has already saved us. Acts 4.12 tells us there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given among heaven by which we can be saved. It's only believing in the name of Jesus, in the sacrifice of Jesus, in the life and death, burial and resurrection of Jesus that we can be rescued from our sins. By believing in his life, in his work, not our own, we can enjoy life with God. It's, it's the words that Jim read earlier. It's the righteousness that comes by faith. It's not a righteousness that can be earned. It's not a righteousness that we can work and get. It's something that God gives in his mercy and grace. If we trust the work of Christ and his work alone, we can be saved. Would you turn from your sin? Would you trust Jesus? Be ready for this day. So then, how does the parable of the talents affect our view of judgment day? First of all, we live as if it's not. But it is coming, and judgment day is coming for every one of us. I mean, if the parable of the talents, servant cast into outer darkness, 
The judgment of the sheep and goats, if this does not put the fear of God into us, I don't know what will. Jesus is coming back. And he's going to put all the wrong things right, including judging those who don't know him. And the evidence of our lives demonstrates the reality of our relationship with Jesus. Friend, if Jesus were to return today, are you ready to meet him? Secondly, our view of God shapes our view of life and vice versa. Uh, There's a helpful book on fearing people called When People Are Big and God Is Small. And, And the idea is that when our circumstances are big and they take over our life, our view of God is dimmed and diminished. If we see the character of God as is revealed in his word, we'll experience in reality that God is always good, always loving, always kind. His character never changes. I mean, keep this truth as an anchor in your mind when you're tempted to doubt. God is good. God is sovereign, and he's always working all things together for our good, Paul says in Romans 8, to make us more like Christ. And sometimes when our experience feels different, or when the world around us looks different, then we would choose, in those times, what we do is we trust God by faith. That's where faith meets the gap between our experience and God's character. Faith is what helps us understand. In those times, we trust that God's, God knows actually what he's doing, that he's not the idiot, that, that we're the idiot who doesn't understand what he's doing. Thirdly, God calls all of us to calculated risk for the sake of his kingdom. I mean, think about the words that Jesus has used to describe discipleship. Leave everything and follow me. Leave father, mother, brother, sister, follow me. Leave houses and land and follow me. Leave all that you have and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. There's nothing temporarily riskier but eternally safer than following Jesus. This is a call away from the idea of so-called casual Christianity to fully devoted, radically committed discipleship. It's people who are bankers, builders, teachers, insurance agents, stay-at-home parents, retirees, and children who see their vocation not as an ultimate end in life, but as an avenue to serve Jesus and help other people see what it means to follow Jesus. Fourthly, only Jesus' faithfulness can save us but our faithfulness still matters. This parable isn't about God accepting you because you've been faithful. It is, however, about understanding how his faithfulness motivates our faithfulness. As one writer put it, grace never condones irresponsibility. In other words, God cares about our obedience. Christians ought to be the most faithful employees, the most obedient children, the most loving spouses, the most humble community servants. We enter the joy of Jesus by faith, but we share this joy by reflecting his faithfulness in our relationships with others. Ultimately, God calls all of us to assess our lives, to ask how we can invest invest them for God's glory and kingdom. I'm going to make a statement, but then I want you to listen to what I say after. Being called to be a pastor or a missionary is a high and holy calling. But being called to be a lawyer is a high and holy calling. Being called to be a teacher is a high and holy calling. 
Being, high to be, 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 being called to be a parent who stays at home to, to, to rear her children is a high and holy calling. Being called to be a grocery store clerk is a high and holy calling. Being, being called to be someone who swings a hammer to make a living is a high and holy calling. Being called to be a student at a high school full of people who don't know Christ, to be someone who walks with Jesus and shows the other kids there what it means to have a relationship with Christ is a high and holy calling. God calls all of us to assess how we are investing our time, energy, and resources for the sake of his kingdom. He doesn't call all of us to do it in a way where we get paid to do that all the time, but he calls all of us to do it in the places that he puts us. How are we investing our time, energy, and our resources for the sake of his kingdom? Is the trend of the investment of your life toward well done, good, and faithful servant? Or does it look like you lazy servant? The day is coming when every one of us will meet Jesus. And I long, so long to hear the master say, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And at the end of the day, we can be comforted when these with these words, our faithfulness matters. But even as God calls us to faithfulness, God has already made provision for our unfaithfulness. He's already made sufficient provision for our failure. In every way that I fail, Jesus succeeds. When we fail, Jesus' perfect record is credited to us. And ultimately, when God welcomes us home, He does care about our faithfulness, but he will ultimately welcome us into his kingdom, not for our faithfulness, not for our well-done, good and faithful servant, but for the well-done Jesus, good and faithful servant. For the well-done, the servant, the great servant, the one who suffered and died in our place and never failed and always succeeded. The one who was the perfect investment of the master's wealth. And then when Jesus comes on this day, on this judgment day, he will also fulfill one of God's most beautiful promises, Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death shall be no more. Now, neither shall there be mourning nor pain anymore. Jesus is coming back. And on that day, he will welcome us home for his well done. But for those who walk with Jesus... He can also welcome us home with a well-done, good, and faithful servant, too. Ultimately, God welcomes us home for the sake of His Son, Jesus, but He calls us to reflect the faithful character of Jesus in the way that we live, too. Let's take a moment now and respond to God's Word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to God now.